In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I think it would be good to um, go through some of the events to understand what exactly was going on this day. Because it's a story that we hear and we repeat, but we don't always know the meaning of the things that were going behind, even from a historical perspective. So we'll look at this through the lens of St. John the Evangelist, um, the majority of whose Gospels we use throughout this, this Holy Week in the Evening Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. St. John starts off his gospel before going to any of the narratives that we, we go throughout the week, telling us exactly who the Lord is telling us directly and explicitly that the one that we're seeing is the creator of the world. In fact, the beginning of his gospel are the exact words of the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning. And they used to begin a text. The title would be given by the name of the first words. It wasn't given by the author the way that we do now. We call it the Gospel of John, but it would have been known at that time as Genesis. It would have been known as in the beginning. And it says that the Lord, the English that we read in this one says, dwelt among us. The actual word is the Lord tabernacled among us. He tented among us. And this is an explicit reference again to say that the Lord, his real abode is in one place, in the bosom of the Father. And the Lord, when he comes among men, this isn't his home. Earth is not his home. Which is why even in the Old Testament, before the making of a temple, the Lord dwelt in tabernacles. He dwelt in tents. He didn't dwell in rich places. He didn't come to us as a king. In fact, when King David wanted to make a temple for him, the Lord said, I don't want one. He said, I'm fine with the tent that I'm in. And David is the one who insisted on making one, and, and the Lord told him, you can save for it, and your son can build it. But by the time of the coming of the Lord, the temple had turned into a place of sin rather than a place of love. The temple actually became a symbol of all that was wrong with the, with, with the Judaic world. It wasn't a symbol actually of what was right anymore. And so we need to look to understand the events of last night and this day because the events started in the evening and they went all the way through the night and into the day. Is that we all know the stories, we've read it throughout the week, of God looking for a chosen, originally wanting the whole world, the world rejecting him, and he chose to himself a chosen people in the person of Abraham and his descendants. And he swore a covenant with Abraham and each of his successors that he would be their God if they would be his people. 
And as we saw, the people never kept the, the covenant at all. The Lord tried over and over and over with them. And this is why we read so many prophecies throughout the week where the prophets were, were coming saying, fix it, fix it, come back, come back. Um, and it wasn't good enough until the Lord said, no problem, I, I'll surrender you to your own will. But rather than destroy you, what ended up actually getting destroyed in the captivity was the temple. The first temple got destroyed. And when they came back from their exile, the temple had been ransacked, it had been completely demolished. And the people of the Lord never were able to hear the word of the Lord again. There was no prophets. No prophets were, arose among them. For 400 years straight, they didn't hear a single word from God. And so during this time, there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of change. We know that the Babylonians are the ones who took them into exile. The Persians are the ones who let them go back. But when the Greeks took over, the Greeks Hellenized everywhere. Alexander the Great was famous for Hellenizing everyone. And this caused a problem in Judea. And so some people were very friendly with the Greeks, and some people were not. And those that were not were called the Hasidim, the pure. And this is where the Pharisees came from. They were the ones that wanted to keep everybody pure from Greek thought, from, from wrong thought, from philosophy. And the reason for this is because they said it was for straying from the truth that we were punished. And so we need to keep ourselves pure, lest we fall again. So the actual motivation originally of the Pharisees was not a bad one. Um, it was something that stemmed from something good. The word Pharisee itself actually means to divide, which, which should ring familiar to you, because this is what we say with the bishops and the priests, to rightly divide the word of truth. And so that was the point of, of a Pharisee. But when they returned they found something troubling. Not only was the temple ransacked, but the Ark of the Covenant was gone. This is recorded for us in Jewish history, not in Christian history. And the Ark was kept in the place of the Holy of Holies, and that place is what they refer to as the Dubar. And the Dubar meant the Word. It meant it was the speaking place of God. This is where God is supposed to speak from. And so they saw that the Dubar was gone, the word was gone, which in Greek is the Logos. The Logos was missing. And so there was no more speech coming from the temple. And where the Ark would have been in the original temple when they rebuilt the second temple, what they found in this place is that there's a concrete slab where the Ark should have been, and they had a cherubim on either side, but with emptiness in between. The symbol we will see again shortly. But during this period of frustration for the, for the Jews, some people said, well, we will count on God to deliver us because there's no way God wants us to remain captive. And so the Greeks attacked the Jews, and the Jews had said, we trust in the Lord to deliver us, so we won't fight. We will stay in our temple and we will pray and nothing will happen to us. But in fact, they were massacred. And so a group of Jews said, well then from now on we will take upon ourselves to defend ourselves. And this began what became known later on as the Maccabean Revolt. 
And this was a, a major problem. This is all found in the Deuterocanonical books, um, which are important to, to read. And it, it matters a lot with what's happening in the events of today. They're not unconnected. It's not just history. And so they made a revolt, and they actually won the revolt. Um, and they were able to obtain autonomy for a certain amount of time until the Romans came. And the Romans cast out the Greeks and they took over, but the Romans were more tolerant than the Greeks and told the Jews that we will permit you to keep your religion and we will permit you to keep your temple, but you have to bow to Rome and you have to understand that your freedom is based on our benevolence. And a very important thing began starting in the year 86. The Romans said, we will choose. We will choose your high priests. This is equivalent today of, of the president of Egypt deciding for the church who will be pope. That is exactly what happened starting in 86. And the first in the line of these high priests was Annas, the high priest. And so... The condition of this priesthood was loyalty to Rome. The condition of this high priesthood was, we've put you in this place, and you must keep the peace. Because if you don't keep the peace, we don't have to let you exist. We can and will utterly destroy you. So there's already a background among the leadership that rebellion is not good for any of the people. This is why we see things being said like by Annas by accident or Caiaphas by accident saying it is better for one person to die than everyone he meant that literally because if there was an insurrection the whole people of God in his view would have been completely annihilated but there was one Jewish character who was very supportive of the Romans his name was Herod and in reward for his loyalty to the Romans against the Greeks, the Romans gave King Herod the Great a portion of land and said, you can govern. And this is the portion that Herod the Great, the one who, who massacred many children, was in charge of. And in, in, in Jerusalem itself was governed by the governor of Rome, which in the story we now see is, is Pilate. When King Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided for his four sons, and Herod, one of his sons, took Galilee. And so those who were under Roman jurisdiction, those who were under the governor, who were under Pilate, they did not have the right to execute anybody of any kind in any way. Those who were under Judean rule, those who came under the divided lands of Herod, those people were permitted to stone, they were permitted to kill, they were permitted to do things, but those under Roman could not. All, all authority to uphold those things had to come to Rome, which we will, we will see playing out. But what the Jews were expecting, because of all of this going on for all of these years, what they were expecting was not a savior who, who preaches repentance, not a savior who was speaking of anything else. What they were looking for was a political hero. They were looking for somebody who was going to be the son of David. They were looking for somebody who was going to restore the temple to its former glory. Somebody who would expel the Romans. Somebody who would purify the priesthood. This were the different dreams. For those who really were upset, the Essenes, they went into the desert saying, we're waiting for the Messiah to come 
to put in a real high priest. But everybody had a different version of what they were expecting. But what they were expecting was not the Son of Man spoken of by Daniel the prophet, who our Lord kept on identifying as. They were not expecting the Son of God in the way that our Lord would say that it was. They wanted the Son of David, which is one of the reasons why our Lord never once in any of the four Gospels refers to himself as Son of David, even though he is the Son of David. He only referred to himself as the Son of Man, and as we will see as the Great I Am. Because the work of our Lord was not the work that they were wanting or expecting. The work of our Lord was one of restoration. The work of our Lord was to restore humanity to its former glory, to restore humanity to the image and likeness in which it was created. It was to reveal and reconcile the Father to us, because the Father is the Creator. We say that the Lord, our Lord, our Lord was in the bosom of the Father, right? The bosom of the Father is a very symbolic thing because. When you lay yourself on, on someone's bosom, it's a sign of being beloved. It's where you hear the inner workings of the heart, where you hear the inner thoughts, the most deepest and most intimate things. This is where the Logos always resides, and this is what he's revealing to us from the Father, because no one can see the Father. And so he comes to us as the express image in order for us to know him. And that's why our Lord kept on repeating all throughout the Gospel of John, my food is to do the will of God. My work is to do the will of God. My message is to tell you the will of, of the Father. Every single thing I do is to tell you who the Father is, what he wills, and who you ought to be. This is what he was doing. No man has seen, the, seen God at any time. Our Lord was coming to us to give us what is his? Right? We pray this in the psalmody. He took what is ours and gave us what is his. So he's taking on the whole of our humanity and giving us the dignity of his Godhead by grace. Right? He was giving us the things that don't belong to us. The Lord doesn't come from here. God doesn't come from the earth. Right? This is why it says the word became flesh, that he entered into time, took on something that wasn't his. Flesh isn't his. It's not his nature. God is above material. And he gave unto us the gifts that are his. He gave us light. He gave us truth. He gave us life. But as St. John says, he came to the world and the world knew him not. And even more sadly, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And his own was not just the kingdom of, of Israel. The own was his fleshly family, and they received him not. We read earlier in the week, in John 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, before our Lord actually goes, his brethren said to him, Depart now and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you do. For there is no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it explicitly says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. His own, these, are, these are his actual blood relatives. These are his cousins. 
right? And they're they're being a little sarcastic. Like, if, if this is really what you're about, why don't you go show yourself openly, right? Whereas they were the ones who are supposed to be the ones most dignified by him, the most honored by him. When he went and preached in his own hometown, the response of the people was not, this is great, this is he's one of us, he comes from us. Their response was to take him and try and throw him off a cliff. His own received him not. And the people did not receive him. The people just gossiped. Have you heard about that, that Jesus character? I heard he did this, I heard he did that. There are very few real followers. And even some of the few that did follow, eventually, virtually everyone cries out, crucify him. Many of the people were in it for the show and for the free food. And if we look at the apostles, the apostles didn't really get it either. In fact, in the Gospel of John, unlike in the Synoptics, the only one who makes the true confession of faith about who Jesus Christ is is actually Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Not even St. Peter in the Gospel of John makes the confession of faith. We also see that when our Lord gives his discourse on the bread of heaven, it says at the end of that chapter that many people are offended, including many disciples. None of the twelve left him, but there were other disciples that were following him closely, that when they heard these things, they said, no, that's, that's too much for us, and they abandoned him at that. And then we have Judas. Unless we be too harsh on Judas, Judas just didn't get it either. Judas is, is a variation of the word Judah. Right? That's his name. And Judah was the true temple. Judah was the true kingdom. So to anybody named after Judah, their great expectation is the restoration of the temple. So you can imagine for Judas, when he's hearing our Lord say, I will destroy the temple, what kind of consternation from within that would, that would cause. Saying, no, I'm, I'm going to take that down. Or, for example... We read multiple times this week the story of the woman who washed the Lord's feet. And many of us might not understand why at the end of that story it says that Judas left and immediately went to go to the high priest. The reason for this is that what our Lord did there was very scandalous. Because it was shameful. It was very shameful for a woman to go moving about on her own to enter into someone's house to which she was not invited, and then to go in and touch a man in that way. This would have been cause for any modest person, any righteous person to say, this is wrong. And our Lord didn't. Our Lord said, leave her alone. Our Lord dignified her and excused her and even elevated her and said, she will be remembered. For Judas, this was the last straw, right, of, of who are you? Right? What kind of person are you that you do something like this? They didn't get it. His own received and not even his closest. Of course, he was also motivated by greed, as we find out, but it was not greed alone that drove Judas. Peter, as we saw, denied him. The disciples all hid. They didn't get it. If they got it, this wouldn't have been their reactions. Lastly is the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They were shamed by him. The culture of, of the Mediterranean is very different than it is here in Canada, 
where one of the most pivotal values till this day is honor. And it's not always Christian at all, often it's not at all. Many of us have heard our, our parents talk about my dignity, my honor, um, and, it's, and it's symbolized in being able to raise your head, which is why your, the back of your neck is seen as, as a symbol of, of, your, of your dignity, which is why you don't allow someone to slap you there in, in Middle Eastern culture, right? And this culture is one of exchange, where you challenge someone, and depending on the response, puts them where they are. This is why sometimes you'll find um, if someone said something someone considers disrespectful, then the response is, I have to take my right back. as right? I have to take it back. And I have to take it above what they did to me, which is totally wrong. But this is the culture of, of, the, of, of the Mediterranean. This is the exchange that was going on between the Pharisees and our Lord is that the Pharisees would come to the Lord with a challenge. What do you think of this? And the expectation was that he would fail the test. And if they did, he'd be belittled. Right? They would have, they would have shamed him. The problem is not once did it work. Every single time that they challenged our Lord, his response shamed them. And so in the, in the face of the people, the Pharisees were being diminished day by day by day, which produces envy. And envy leads to murmuring, and then from murmuring it leads to sedition, and from sedition it led to murder. They could not control the Lord or his popularity, and they have held him on trial from long before the events of this night. The trial of our Lord in the Gospel of John starts in John chapter 5. It doesn't start in John 18. It starts in John chapter 5 when he heals the man by the pool who had been sitting there for 38 years. They go absolutely insane. How dare you raise somebody up? How dare you do work on the Sabbath? And they go into a very long back and forth. And the Lord calls witnesses. It's a very much a trial motif. The Lord says, I'll call witnesses and you want to hold me on trial? Sure, I will call my father as a witness. I will call on John the Baptist as a witness. I will call on the works that I do as a witness. And I will call on your father that you call Moses and his writings as a witness because they speak of, of me. I'm ready to go to trial. In fact, you are guilty because you don't know what you're talking about. And it drove them insane because they could not respond to him. And the trial didn't stop there. In John 7 through 10, the Feast of the Tabernacles, they're still coming at our Lord. They're still coming and holding him on trial. And, and we read many chapters of this uh, discourse throughout the Holy Week. right? All of these parts where, where our Lord, they say, who are you? Who, who, who are you? What right do you have to say this thing? When he first started speaking, when he'd say, my father, they were responding saying, who's your father? Isn't your father Joseph? We know your father. By the time it comes to this feast, they know who he's talking about, which is why they get very angry, because he's made it very clear what he's talking about. He says, I'm not speaking of my own. I'm not saying my own thing. I'm not making up stuff. I'm telling you what the father says. And so they say, who is your father? And he says, you, the one who you, you think 
it is, that who you call God, that is, that is my father. And they want him dead for this. They want him dead because they get it. They get what he's saying. They don't get what it means, but they've understood what he's saying. Because they said, it's not because of a good work that you did that we want to kill you. It's for blasphemy, because you said that God is your father making yourself equal to God. Then the raising of Lazarus was the last straw. The raising of Lazarus was the last straw because they had no idea anymore how to deal with this. But our Lord in the Gospel of John does reveal who he is. In the synoptics, it's always a mystery. In the Gospel of John, it is not a mystery. In the Gospel of John, our Lord is extremely, extremely explicit. And even more explicit if you're able to read the Gospel in its original language, in the Greek. These are the great I am statements of our Lord. Because in the Old Testament, God revealed himself and he said, Who are you? What is your name? And he said, I am who I am. Ego imi in, in Greek. And our Lord in the Gospel of John repeats this over and over and over in extremely, extremely explicit ways. First is with the man born blind, he says it. He says, I am the bread of life. And actually in the Greek, the, a better way of reading it is not I am the bread of life. It's I am is the bread of life. And so he's saying me, I am the, the, the I am. I am the bread of life. That is who I am, who I, I is. With the Samaritan woman, it could not have been more explicit. Because with the Samaritan woman, if you translate the Greek very literally, when she asks, who is this? What his response to her is, I who am before you, it is I who is I am, is what he says to her explicitly. He says, whoever sees me has seen the Father, because I am his very image. He tells them, I tell you what I hear because I am from the bosom of my Father. Anyone who claims that Jesus did not claim ever to be God just doesn't know how to read scripture. He said it plainly. But this was impossible for the people to understand. They didn't get it. They couldn't see past his accent. How is this God? He's, he speaks like a Galilean, right? They, they mention his accent. They can't see past his language. They can't see past his lineage. They can't see past his mortality. They just see a man. And so they're not seeing past it. But our Lord has said that I am, and in addition to being the great I am, he is the new Adam. He is the new Adam of whom it was said to the serpent in Genesis, in Genesis 2, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the woman, and between your seed and the seed of the woman. He will be on the watch for your head, and you will be on the watch for his heel that the one who's going to come from the seed of Eve, from the new Eve, which is Mary, would be on watch for the serpent, and the serpent would be on watch for him because he knows that this one who will come is the one who will crush him. The old Adam is being remedied by the new. The old Adam was in the garden of paradise. The new Adam we find in Gethsemane, in the, in the garden with his disciples. The first Adam was formed as an earthly man, and the new Adam is renewing and creating the spiritual man. The first Adam hid from God because of his transgression. The new Adam presents himself before the Father willingly and joyfully.
The first Adam brought darkness into the world. And the new Adam is the light that has come into the world. The first Adam needed to be called by God into repentance in the garden. The new Adam tells his accusers explicitly who he is. The Garden of Eden was closed to the old Adam, but the Garden of Paradise is open because of the new. The first Adam blamed his wife for his sin, and yet the new Adam justifies even the centurion coming to arrest him. The first Adam brought toil to the earth, and the new Adam brings rest. The first Adam blasphemed God, and the new Adam was blasphemed. The first Adam defended himself, but the new Adam remains silent in front of his accusers. The first Adam was compelled to die, and the new Adam dies voluntarily. Because the first Adam brought death, but the new Adam is the one who is bringing life. He's bringing life on Golgotha, the place of the skull. If you look at the icon that's presented, the images that are presented, there's a skull that's at the foot of the cross because there was a tradition that when the Israelites entered the Promised Land, they brought with them the bones of their father Adam and buried him. And the tradition was that on the place of Golgotha, on the place of the skull, was where Adam was buried. And that the blood of Christ would fall down, dripping from the cross and renewing and giving life to Adam. And so we come to the trial of this morning, which was brutal. The one before Pilate was six hours long. When it says early in the Gospel of John, that doesn't mean early like we mean today of of a random hour. Early was a watch of the night in the Roman hours. It was the last watch before dawn, the last watch before a new day. So meant that for six hours straight, our Lord was on trial. And none of them get what's going on. Judas and the people of the temple, they knew the truth, but they, but they rejected it. They had spent time with him, which is the worst kind of betrayal. And our Lord is silent, almost completely silent, because as we said, he's restoring Adam. And Adam is on trial. And Adam, Adam is guilty. Adam did blaspheme. Adam did wrongly make himself equal to God. The only time that our Lord makes testimony is to declare the will of the Father. He will not lie. The Jews are blinded by authority and doctrine, and they don't like what the Lord is saying. And the Sanhedrin and rulers need him dead, not just for their teachings and not just for their honor, but because, as we said earlier, they are very afraid that if there is an uprising to follow this person, that the whole nation would be destroyed. And so they play their cards extremely wisely with Pilate. Because as was mentioned this morning, they don't come to Pilate with an accusation originally of blasphemy. But when it looks like they're not going to get their way, then they say, well, actually, in our law, he broke this. And Pilate says, well, what does it have to do with me? And so they make it have to do with him by saying, well, this man claims to be a king. And if he makes himself a king, then Caesar is not king. And so they were directly threatening him with political instability because they knew that the result of this would not just be the death of their people if there was an insurrection, but it would also be the death of Pilate because the emperor, any, any incompetent governor was slain. That was Roman, the Roman way of doing things. 
So they threatened basically Pilate with his own life of saying, well, if you don't do this, you're not a friend of Caesar, which will cost you your life. And it's for this reason that Pilate event, eventually relents and hands them over to, our, to hands our Lord over to them to be killed. And so he is crucified. And this is the hour of glory. Our Lord himself said this. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. The hour of glory here is death, not resurrection. This is the big question of the trial and the gospel of St. John. Can you see that moment as glory? Can you see what is going on? Can you look at that walk of shame? Abuna described during the sermons the gruesomeness. In addition to what Abuna said, the, the crucifixion, you intentionally were forced to walk with your cross because it was meant to be a walk of shame. It was meant to be a public display of your humiliation and people would line the streets to mock you and to shame you. This is why Simon of Cyrene is, has to be compelled to carry it because he doesn't want to be associated with that because like, I didn't do anything. I, don't, I shouldn't be the one shamed. But our Lord has taken on as his glory to become sin and to become cursed. The Lord is being accused of real sin, blasphemy, breaking the Sabbath, and many others, all of which had sentences of death. For all these accusations, whether before Caius or Annas or Pilate or Herod, in all of these he is silent. When he's asked, he doesn't answer the accusations. He is allowing the curse of the crucifixion to take hold because the the, the, the saying, the prophecy in the Old Testament was, is whoever is hung on a tree is accursed. So he's allowing the curse to take hold. He's saying, no, I will take the conviction to become the curse so that I can undo the curse laid in Eden when my children blasphemed and were removed from the garden. But our Lord is uniting himself to our body. He became sin. He became a vessel of destruction in order that there might be life. That was the solution prepared before time, and this was veiled to them in the Old Testament, that God was coming in the flesh to slay sin and give life. When the temple was destroyed, when the people were sent into captivity in Babylon, they were upset that the temple was destroyed, but they didn't understand that the temple being destroyed was mercy upon them. God took the temple as the vessel of sin and destroyed it instead of his people. Saying, I will not kill the people, I will destroy the temple, I will spare the life of my people. And this is what our Lord did in the flesh for us on this day. He said, I will not destroy the people, I will take the sin in my flesh, and I will be destroyed as a vessel of salvation for the people. And so he reveals himself in this moment of glory in a way that not many people understand today. There is a tradition that we still have in the Middle Eastern culture. In, in, in up until about four or five hundred years ago, there was no such thing as chapters and verses in the Bible. There was no headings and there's no paragraphs. 
And so when you wanted somebody to know what we're reading from, whether it's a psalm or another passage, you said the first words of that section, and then the people would refrain. That's why, for example, when the psalms are distributed in the monasteries or in Egypt, they don't give numbers. They'll say, the Lord is my shepherd, and you know to continue with the Lord is my shepherd. They don't tell you 23. And so there's a deep theological meaning to the words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But there's an extremely important cultural reason for our Lord saying those words. It's that he was revealing himself to the people. That in saying the words of the psalm, it should have incited all of the people to begin to recite the words of that psalm. And if they did, then they would have heard its words. Why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my roaring? Approach of men, and, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despise the people. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, he delighted in him. Many bulls have come past me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaves to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have come past me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare at me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. If they had recited the words of the psalm, they would have realized that the very words they were saying were the words of the psalm. If they had recited the psalms, they would have realized that the lost cost on his garments had just occurred in front of their very eyes. They would have realized and seen the directness of this prophecy written by somebody centuries before this for whom none of this actually ever happened. And then a great mystery happens as well. The temple, the great veil of the temple, which is a ginormous thing, it was not a small veil, very thick and very, very tall, was split from top to the bottom. And suddenly the temple was exposed for what it was, empty. That the Dubar wasn't there, that the ark wasn't there, that there is no voice coming from the temple because the temple has been destroyed precisely as the Lord said that would happen. So the question of St. John is, do you get it? Can you see past his mortality? Or like the Jews in this story, are all you're seeing is weakness and shame? The Jews are drunk of joy at what they think is their revenge, that this man who shamed them over and over and over, that they were taking their right back. They could now hold their head up high because this one who had shamed him is now humiliated. And not just humiliated in his death, but humiliated that not only was he being killed, but he's being killed by the Romans, the arch enemy of the people of God in their view. Is that what you see? Do you see mortality? Do you see weakness? Do you see defeat? That's John's question. Can you see past the accent, past the lineage, past the carnage, past the mortality, and declare who is God? His own received him not. The question is, who do you see? Because the church today declares that she gets it. 
The church today declares that she sees who it is. When we sang the hymn, the hymn O Monogenes, earlier, we said, Holy God. We declared him as God, that this is indeed the word who existed before the ages. And we even say, who in weakness has shown forth what is greater than might. We recognize that, yes, he and his father are one, that he is God, and that this is the guise of weakness that, that, that the guise of weakness that was seen is greater than might because it was a loving sacrifice, because it was voluntary, it was not defeat, it was the power of his own will to lay himself down. In Fa'it of Inf, we said, This is he who offered himself voluntarily an acceptable sacrifice upon the cross for the salvation of our race. And his good father, because we believe, as it says, whoever believes becomes my children, we declare that we believe that God indeed is his father. We will not deny this. Smell his sweet save in the evening on Golgotha. And we worship thee, like the man born blind, like the Samaritan woman, when revealed to them who he is, their response was to bow down and prostrate at his feet. We sing 400 kirilaisons from the east to the west and from the north to the south, bowing and prostrating ourselves before the one who is, before the one who exists before all ages, declaring that we understand that this is the hour of glory in which we were redeemed, and we proclaim it to the four corners of the earth with pride and dignity and process it as a sign of victory. And if you can see this, you'll understand a great wonder. Because as we said, that scene of the Holy of Holies that revealed the nakedness of the temple, with the cherubim on each side, we will see this same scene on the morning of the resurrection. After Peter and the beloved disciple leave the tomb, Mary Magdalene returns. And when she looks in, she sees the same thing. She sees an empty slab of stone with two cherubs on each side, one where the head was and one was the feet, where the feet was. Because our Lord isn't found in an empty tomb. Our Lord isn't dead. Our Lord destroyed the temple and he raised it up in three days as he said because the temple is himself. He is the living temple. He is the place of Dubar, of speech. He is the Dubar because he is the Logos himself. And he has allowed us to be united to him, which is why he said, Abide in me and I in you, and you become the new temple, not a temple built by hands that falls apart. He came unto his own, but as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. If you get it, if you understand it, this is the invitation. The invitation is to go on the walk of shame. The invitation is that you would be his disciple if you know what that means. It is to see that the one who hangs on the tree is God, the Logos. The invitation is to believe, and if you believe, you become a son or daughter. But to be a son or daughter means you must walk the walk of shame, not to look for your dignity, not to look for your honor, not to look for your rights. It means to turn the other cheek, it means not to return evil for evil. It means to pray for forgiveness for those who despise or abuse you, even while they are doing it. It's not to insult people 
who you believe have wronged you, is to do as our Lord taught us, to do the will of the Father. If we walk that walk with Him, if we die with Him, then we rise with Him. The deepest love in existence is to die for another, and when we cannot do that, at least to accompany and endure those who are suffering with them. This is love. It's not to say nice things. It's not to think nice things. It's to do sacrificial things. Do you get it? To live life is really to die. It's to die to yourself and for others. This is the identity of God. And it is in His identity that we are formed and that identity we must strive for. If you live for this world, you will die with this world. Your mortality is what you live for, then you will partake of mortality. But strive for the higher things and strive to see the glory of perfection rather than to be blinded by the externals of what you think is weakness. This is the glory of God. It's love. And this is the glory of humanity. It is love. To be a disciple of Jesus is to not be of this world. It's to be dead to the world, not of this world. This world is a world of lies, betrayal, and money. This death is to all of that in order to live, really to live in the kingdom of truth. Christ is the true high priest. Christ is the scapegoat. Christ is the lamb. Christ is the priest offering himself. Offering himself. Today, we have been passed over. Write it, as we read earlier today, on your signposts, on your doors, and in your houses, that we were supposed to die, but the Lamb did for us so that we might live. God forbid that we glory, save in the cross of our Lord. Can you now see him? The timeless has entered time. The uncircumscript allowed himself to be contained for the salvation of all. Let us bow before him and worship him, our crucified God, our God who submitted himself to mortality and death for the life of the world. Hail to the cross. Hail to the crucified God, the King of kings. Death has been slain. Glory to him forever.